0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: About a, a gift of a precious prized heirloom ring given to a one-year-old girl on her first birthday. Remember that? The gist of that story was this. You as the parent have a prized ring that's been in your family for years and you know the the history of it, you know its sentimental value, its monetary value. It's precious to you. And so you decided to give it to your daughter on her first birthday to pass it along to her. And so you carefully wrap it in this large box and you put it on the floor next to your one-year-old, hope in your heart that she's going to love it And what happens? She tears into it, discards the ring and is happy to play with the box. What's happened there? The little girl has inordinate loves. Loves that are out of order, that are disordered. And the reason she is that way is that she doesn't get it. She doesn't really know what she's dealing with so often we too are that way when it comes to comparing the Lord and all the blessings that he has given us with all the other desires that we have in life we get them out of order that story calls us it challenges us to address that and to fix it and put our our desires back in order and we're gonna see that same call and challenge in today's text Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 to 6. On the surface, these verses are a call to us to love others and not to engage in sexual sin. That's what's on the surface there. But underlying the problem these verses address and pointing to the solution is the same issue about ordered loves. It's going to challenge us about our desires And this is an issue that, by the way, applies to just a host of sin. And it applies to all of us here, even if the particular issues addressed this morning are not great problems for you. This is going to speak to all of you at some level. That's what we're going to find here in in Ephesians 5, 1 to 6 this morning. Previously, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, we'd seen an emphasis on walking or on living in unity. We are, we have been made one by one and so we are to walk as one walk in unity we're we're gifted differently but we are a body that was 1 to 16 and then he moved on from there to talk about walk in holiness told us what that would look like how to do that we are because we have put off and put on this old self we are to continually keep putting on and putting off things while we are being continually renewed in our mind and then last week, he told us a whole bunch of what that would look like with a lot of commands. Put, a, put this off, put this on, because we are to walk in holiness because we are a body. That was chapter 4. Now, chapter 5 this morning, we're going to find Paul instructing us about another way we are to walk in a worthy manner. We had walk in unity, walk in holiness, and now we have walk in love. There are three more of these walk phrases here in chapter 5. The first one this morning is walk in love. The structure of this passage is going to hold to that familiar put off, put on thing that we've been seeing. So it'll feel a little familiar. First, Paul is going to tell us how and what we are to put on. It's going to be in verses 1 to 2. Then in 3 to 4, he's going to tell us how and what we are to put off. And then in 5 and 6, connected to that putting off, he's going to issue a strong warning to us. So there are three guiding statements here in this passage this morning. You put them all together and they build towards this main overarching point. Because of all that Christ is for you, because of all that Christ is for you, walk in love, not in lust. Because of all that Christ is for you, because of all that you have in him, Because of what he has done for you, because of what he will yet be for you, this is yet another line thrown back to chapters 1 to 3. Paul never leaves that stuff far behind. And his methodology should be a lesson to us. Christian, you must never leave chapters 1 to 3 behind. Stay near them always. Paul constantly does. Because of all that Christ is you, because your mind is fixed on that, and your loves are properly ordered on him first. Because of that, walk in love, not in lust. It's the main point this morning. That's what he's going to get at. We'll see that unfolded as we turn our attention to the text. Let me read chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which is also printed in your bulletin. Printed on the note page in your bulletin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verses 1 to 6. Chapter 5 begins with two parallel statements that when combined give us the first guiding statement in this passage. Here it is. Fasten your gaze on the Lord and put on other-centered love fasten your gaze on the Lord and put on other-centered love look to him be captured by him and his nature be renewed on the inside This should sound familiar be renewed in there look at him gaze at him and then what you put on is other-centered not self-centered other-centered love just like he is you put on his nature develop this. Verse 1 says, therefore, that is, as so Paul saying, let me call your attention, let me remind you of what was last week. Chapter 4 verse 32, because God in Christ has forgiven you, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Beloved children. That's what he calls you. Christian Fasten your gaze on the Lord who has worked a marvelous thing on your behalf. Like a father who draws his children to himself, like a mother even, who draws her young child to herself. He has drawn you to himself. He has saved you. The Father in the Son has forgiven you. And you are beloved, dearly loved. You are his adopted child, Sink that into your mind. Put it in there. Let it sit on you. That it and He would become your supreme desire. Would become highest in your affections, in your loves. You are the object of His love in that He has forgiven you. I can say these words, but you need to ponder them. He has forgiven you. God in heaven looked down at you. And He saw you in your rebellion. He didn't see you already turned to Him. He saw you in your rebellion, walking away from Him, dead in sin. And He decided to act to save you, to bring you to Himself. This is is an immense blessing to you. Now ultimately, Yes, He is God. And ultimately, this is all as chapter 1 pointed out repeatedly. This is all to the praise of His glorious grace. God is at the center of this. But here in these verses, He's calling you a beloved child. It's, It's pointing at you. Paul's reminding you, Christian. We've talked previously about preaching the gospel to yourself. Paul's preaching the gospel to you again. He's writing to Christians, about Christians. And he says, this is true of you. He's acted to save you. That is love. He has acted to reach out and give you, and to act on you in the greatest way, towards your greatest need. To give you the thing you most needed, to give you back Himself. Forgiveness is not the end goal. Forgiveness gives you back God and he's done that for you he looked at you and he saw your greatest need and he said I will meet that I'm gonna act to carry that out we've talked about that previously but can you imagine that can you even think about that I don't know what it would be like it's impossible for me to imagine what my life would be like right now today if the Lord had not saved me if the Lord had not reconnected me to him think about that for a second What would your life be like today? The best you can do is speculate because you can't know. It's even harder to think about what your life would have been like for eternity had He not reached out in love to save you. If you're a believer this morning, you will never know hell. And you will never know what it is like to be apart from Him for eternity in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll never know that. Try to think about it because it's helpful to you, but you'll never know the end of it. You'll never know the final totality of what it's like to be apart from Him. And the reason that you are with Him is because of Him, because He acted to save you. He acted in love towards you verse 2 gives us more to ponder because it tells us how this exactly happened verse 2 hoists up in front of the eyes of our hearts the cross it points us to the cross and says look consider this again you know this but consider it again there he shows you his love you know in the Old Testament countless priests offered countless sacrifices grain and wine and animals different sacrifices and different holidays at different times but all of them were designed to bring the people of God back into union with God but all of them ultimately failed they were pointing towards another sacrifice that would one day fully bring the people of God back into union with God they were all pointing ahead to that and then one day he came Christ came and he went to the cross and he offered up the pleasing aroma Verse 2 says, pleasing aroma. What it's getting at is the accepted aroma. The accepted sacrifice. Capital A. Christ was accepted. He was received in your place. Christ loved you. And because He loved you, He did not consider equal glory with God something to be grasped, but he surrendered that for a moment and he came to earth and he humbled himself and he took on a body he humbled himself because he loved you and he took on a body, the form of a servant and he was willing to die to die even the death of the cross humiliating as that was that is love for you God in Christ forgave you because of his love he went to the cross this is all meant to be gazed at by you you know this I haven't said anything you didn't know you know this but it's continually told to you to remind you of it to hold it up again in front of your eyes and I point out this is not my technique this is Paul's technique under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit God wants to continually remind you of this that you would hold it up in front of you again today and you would gaze at it would it would grip you you'd be grabbed inside in some way this isn't just a doctrine or a neat fact, it is particular it is written to Christians, the pronouns here, us it's talking about you it's particularly talking to Christians about what what God has done for Christians he's meaning that to be focused on you Paul's trying to do something here he's trying to order your loves He's holding this out in front of you, familiar as it is, and almost praying for it. Oh, would this grip them again? Would they be changed? Would something happen inside of them? So that... So that... There's a methodology here. It reminds you of this, so that... you'll be internally changed, renewed just a little bit more, made like Christ... So that you walk in love, you'd be changed inside. you will be like Christ, even an imitator of the Lord. And you would walk in love. That's what he's trying to get at here. You would walk. You would put on other-centered love. Love for God would rise up in you as you see all that He's done for you. You'd gaze at that. You'd be gripped by it. And what would rise up then next right below it? His nature, love for other people. Other-centered love would would become you. You'd become like Him. What does that love look like? Well, again, then we need to gaze at Christ. We need to look at the cross. He loved us. He gave Himself up for us. The kind of other-centered love that we're talking about is the kind of love that dies to self, that dies to self's desires, that humbles oneself, that puts aside your own right to be appreciated and acknowledged and respected and properly compensated and all those things, that puts them all aside and says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to meet that other person's greatest need not necessarily to do what they want but to meet their greatest need at times it might not be at all what they want love is not just a feeling love is an attitude that says I'm going to put myself away and I'm going to live for your greatest need that is other centered love if you want that in words it's back in chapter 4 verses 32 or in verse 2 this kind of love is humble It is meek in spirit. It is patient with other people when they fail you or offend you. It's kind and tender-hearted, long-suffering when offended and eager to forgive, keeping no record of wrongs. It seeks to build others up with wholesome words and not tear them down. It seeks to serve and not be served. It's not done temporarily, weekdays between 9 and 5. It's a total thing. It's a hard thing. I don't know how you can do it. You can't, which is why you need first fix your gaze on the Lord and be internally changed if you have any hope of living like this, of walking like this it's a high calling but it's what we are called to do you walk like this do you have this attitude this other centered love think through your life right now it's okay if you take a little detour here and get distracted I hope you do think through your life right now think of particular people don't just think in generalities. it's too easy to miss something think about particular people and ask yourself do I have this attitude towards that person or these people husbands think of your wives wives vice versa this is a hard one for me it's a humbling almost embarrassing one for me do you have this attitude with your spouse This humble other centered love giving up yourself to seek their greatest need and to fulfill it if you can. Parents, how about your children or children your parents? How about the other people in your office or your neighbor or other church members here, people that you're in clubs with? Think of particular people and ask, is this my attitude towards them? Do I look at those particular people and say, I'm going to give up myself to meet your greatest need if I can. I'm going to love you, in other words. Do you do that? Sift your heart in this. Ask yourself, is this true of me? Give the Spirit free reign in you. Invite Him in to convict you and and to cleanse you. Repent of this if you need to. Think about particular people. It's my hope, it's my prayer that we would be a people who are known for our love. First and foremost, for love of people here in this body, but not just stopping there. Also for love of people who are outside of this body. People who don't yet know Christ, but live in a world that so desperately needs people who live for the other's greatest need not for their own this is what you're called to walk in love it's one of my hopes and prayers for us it's commanded here in these verses it's expected of you but it is only going to happen as you gaze at the Lord and what he has done as you look at the cross you see him there As you connect back to verse 32, because God in Christ forgave you, do this. There's a way that it happens, and it only happens that way. You must be internally, continually renewed. Gaze at Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ and put on other-centered love. second guiding statement in the passage is found in verses 3 and 4. It's the opposite of the first point. It's what we are to put off now. Fasten your gaze on the Lord and put off self-centered lust. Fasten your gaze on the Lord. It's just like the first part, but here's now the opposite. Instead of putting on, put off self-centered lust. Get rid of it put it far away. Such self-centered, self-gratifying lust is not to be associated with us. It is entirely improper for us. It must not even be named among us. We should be total strangers to what these verses are talking about. It should be cast far away from us. Paul wants to throw this into the sea, tie an anchor to it and get it away from us. He's going to load up a bunch of terms to describe what this walk looks like, to bring them up before us and hopefully to appall us by it. That's what he's going to do here. We're supposed to put all this off. It belongs to our former way of life. It shouldn't have anything to do with us. But after all these commands to put it off, there is some hope coming here. He's not just going to tell us what we are to do. He's going to tell us how to do it. So there's a positive point coming here too. That's what I hope to get to here, and I hope you can hang with me through the the yuck to get to the positive at the end of this second point. What does this self-centered, lustful walking look like? What characterizes it? Well, it shows up in your actions and in your speech and in your attitude. In verse 3, it's seen in sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Verse 4... Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Frankly, a lot of these things don't really need to be defined. It's kind of like the old saying goes that, I don't know how to define obscenity, but I know what it is when I see it. You know what a crude joke is when you hear one. You've got a pretty good idea what sexual morality is. I don't need to go into a lot of depth on these things. Nevertheless, some comments are in order. So I'm going to make a few. But before I do that as an aside really I need to comment on something because God Christians and the Bible are commonly seen as anti-sex in some way being prudish it's not true God made our bodies think this through God made our bodies he knows what he did and when he did it he said in Genesis chapter 2 this is very good knows what he did and he approved of it he is not and we must not be anti-sex but he is and we must be very committed to placing this behavior in the proper boundaries fire is a marvelous thing it is extremely useful for heating and for cooking for aesthetic pleasure when it's kept in the fireplace, in your furnace, and in your stove. But just put a little bit of fire on your sofa or in the rafters of your house and you have an immense problem very quickly. Even if you don't, at the start, realize it. God knows what he's doing here and he commands us to put these things off because he is a good and loving God that intends for us to enjoy this good, perfect, wonderful design in the proper boundaries. When we take it out of the boundaries, we end up distorting it and twisting it to at least our detriment and oftentimes to our utter destruction. And because He is a loving God who cares about us, He's telling us what the boundaries are. And He's trying to cast far away from us all this destructive stuff. Heed these commands for your good. Now, what are we to put off? Sexual immorality, verse 3. It's not a focused word here for just one particular type of sin. It includes adultery, that is, violating marriage bonds. But you don't have to be married or sleeping with somebody who is married to commit this sin. It's, it's broader than that. Essentially, it includes all kinds of aberrant behavior broader than just adultery. Anything not between husband and wife falls into this category. The next phrase, and all impurity, further expands on it. Impurity or uncleanness is a state of moral corruption. Corruption of the heart and mind, defilement of the person. The text says all impurity. So there's a lot of stuff included here that could defile you can make a person unclean. But the context is going to narrow this down into its most common usage in the physical arena. This expands on the immorality, the previous phase, because there are some things that would fall into this category that technically don't fall in sexual morality. For instance, pornography. Pornography wouldn't fall into the first term because the person who's involved with it is not actually physically, bodily involved. There are just images there. Photographs for instance So it's not sexual immorality, but it is clearly impurity It's clearly here in the second category viewing pornography defiles your heart and it ruins your mind It hurts you And it will ultimately destroy you you must deal with this you must put it off It's one of those things. That's a little uncomfortable to talk about but is rampant in our society And it's not just men either. It's women too. Deal with this. If you need help dealing with it, then you've got to bring it to the light in some way. Talk to some mature Christian that you know and you can trust. Talk to me. Talk to an elder. Talk to somebody. Bring it into the light. You must if you want to deal with it. And you've got to deal with it. It's dangerous for you. It's destructive to you. Not sexual morality, not any impurity. I'm going to hold off on covetousness for a minute and move on to verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Lust is seen in filthiness or obscenity, behavior that is shameful, that crosses moral bounds deliberately, that shows off the body. It's a foolish talk. The root word here is "foolish" or stupid," even. It's the kind of talk that, that champions or argues in favor of immorality. It tries to argue the benefits of the sexual revolution or something like that. It's, it's foolish. It throws out seeds of temptation. Then there's crude joking. humor and bad taste, crass jokes. Jokes that contain sexual innuendo or suggestive undertones. You know what those are when you hear them. You put all these together. That's just a snapshot of what those words are. I take it that we largely understand them. You put all of them together, and what you get is a, a grand scene, a, a comprehensive picture of the physically immoral life, the actions and speech of those who are walking not in other-centered love, but in other-using, self-centered lust. That's what it looks like there, a comprehensive picture. Their loves are disordered. Love of self has risen up. It's climbed the ladder of love in your heart. It all must be put off. It must not even be named among us, he says. Get rid of it. Hear the instruction of the Lord on this and repent. You know what he's talking about. And if it's talking to you, I take it you know it's talking to you. Turn away from it and repent. You must do that. I have to say that to you because it's here in the text. It's the Lord's instruction. Turn away from it but I'm not going to camp out here very long because I'm imagining that if you've been around the church very long at all, you know you're supposed to put this away. You know this isn't supposed to be a part of your life or our communal life. That's probably not news. The real traction in these verses, I think, comes from how we are to do it, how we are to put it away. We are to put off this self-centered lust, I said, by gazing at the Lord. Where do I get that? Well, I skipped over something very important. I skipped over verse 3, covetousness. covetousness. It's a hard word to say. Skip that over. At first, covetousness seems like an out-of-place word. I get sexual morality and impurity, those are an obvious pair and they fit pretty well with the stuff in verse 4 but what is covetousness doing there in the middle of that? what does it even mean? how does it relate? it must relate because Paul wrote it right there in the middle but I don't get it, what is it? well what is covetousness? covetousness? what does it mean to covet? simply put Coveting is when you want something too much. You really, really want it. Coveting is a desire disorder. You've got desires out of order. Something that might be good has risen up too high. You begin to covet something in you. You desire it and your heart contentedness gets attached to it. You begin to long for it. Your mind works on how can I get that? If I don't get that, I can't go on. I'm just not going to be at peace unless I get that. You're starting to covet it. You want it, and your contentedness is attached to it. You chase it, you work for how you can attain it, either in your mind or even physically. The desire rises up in you, it grows, and it begins to shape you. What's inside of you then comes out, and your behavior starts to match what you're really chasing inside. That thing which has risen up, and you desire a lot. See, this is relating back to that story. Your desires get disoriented. That's what coveting is. When God says, Put no other gods before me, the first commandment, what he means is the tenth commandment Thou shalt not covet. They're the same thing. They're bookends of the law. Coveting is putting another God first in your heart. That's why verse 5 says that the coveter is an idolater. They're the same thing. That's what he's arguing about here. He's telling you, God says, You must desire me above all things. Thou shalt not covet. And the problem here is that desires have gotten disordered. Coveting says, I desire something else to such a degree that it is taking over my mind. My affections are attached to it. And it's going to start to come out in my actions. What's inside comes out, and I have another God in there. Idolatry. Something else has risen up in me. It's ordering my insides. It's starting to call the shots in my life. I'm following after it. You desire that something else more than God and unworthy walking in a hundred different ways, results. Can you see how this relates to lustful walking? Let' me try to connect some of the dots here. God is demoted in your heart. Another God is elevated in its place, in his place. The desire for intimacy, the desire to be known the desire for pleasure, the desire for power, desire for popularity. Some desire, we're complicated people, it could be a number of different things, those are common ones. Some desire rises up inside of you, and it becomes the thing that you are most concerned to have, and if you don't have it, life can't go on. That's coveting. God has been demoted, and that desire has risen up, and you come to realize, you know what? What I want most of all right now is intimacy. We even use the word need. I have a need for intimacy. And I can get that right now at this moment in sexual immorality. I can get that. Or what I desire most right now is acceptance from my friends. And and I can get that right now by telling a crude joke that they'll laugh at. You begin to realize the things that, are, that have risen up in you and that you most want, you begin to realize, I can satisfy them in some of these ways. And the unworthy walking happens. It's going on inside of you. Lustful sexual sin is a desire disorder. It's a worship disorder. It's not just a behavior problem. It's a worship disorder desire problem and so to deal with it we have to address the seed of worship the heart inside of us we've got to look inside to deal with this and so Paul says end of verse 4 not just don't do these things he could say that but he doesn't just say don't do that put it off let me move on he instead issues to us a challenge a call for an internal desire reordering what does he say there instead instead of all that yuck in verses 3 and 4 instead let there be thanksgiving and with that phrase with that phrase a whole Pandora's box is opened up and a vast array of mind-renewing truth is dumped out on the table as soon as you ask thanksgiving for what immediately, a whole host of things is called to mind. If you were to ask Paul that question, Paul, what do you mean there at the end of verse 4? Thanksgiving for what? I'm sure that he would say, Thanksgiving for what? Let me take you back to chapter 1, verse 3. First of all, you should be thankful that God in Christ has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything. Thanksgiving for what? Tons of stuff. Let's move on to verse 4. God chose you. You didn't choose him. God chose you and made you an object of his affection. He predestined to adopt you into his family, and he's given you a vast inheritance. Thanksgiving for what? What do you mean? And you walk you right through the book. He could, though, just go back to chapter 4, verse 32. That is kind of a neat little summary. Thanksgiving for what? God in Christ forgave you. That means a bunch of things for you, Christian. He's poured out His love on you, He has forgiven you, and has removed the barrier that was between you and Him. So He's given you back Himself. Thanksgiving for what? Or He could just go back up just a couple of verses to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and He could say, Thanksgiving for what? You are a dearly beloved child. Would you look at the cross again, please? Would you hold that up in front of your eyes, please, Christian? When you do that, when you gaze at that and you see it and you realize all that it has done for you, all that it means for you today, that you walk day to day in fellowship with God right now because of the cross, and all that it will mean for you in the future, that you will forever and ever live in communion with Him. The question, Thanksgiving for what, gets answered, I think. Instead of three and four, be thankful and then when verse 3 and 4 stuff comes along it just seems ridiculous it seems pitiful okay yeah I can get a little bit of intimacy right now at this moment in that way but at what cost? oh come on you've got to come with a better offer than that that's the hope gaze at the Lord look to Him fix your gaze on Him and be thankful for all that you see there this might sound a little bit like a broken record that's good it is a broken record. Paul's a broken record. The Bible's a broken record. Life begins with vision of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wise walking. It's the beginning of living. The Lord, seeing Him, revering Him, responding rightly to Him, is where life starts and where it ends. Gaze at him, put off then, lustful. Self-centered walking. Fix your mind on these truths. Move on to the third guiding statement of this passage. After Paul's told us what we should put off and put on, here in these first four verses, the third part is found in verses 5 and 6, and they are a warning to us. It's connected to this putting off of the lustful walk. Heed the warnings and put off self-centered lust. Heed the warnings. Put off self-centered lust. With these verses, it's apparent that Paul is using a bit of a carrot and stick approach here. That's his tactic. You know, the carrot and stick thing. That phrase comes from the fact that evidently, I I don't know this, but evidently farmers used to use one of two ways to get their animal to walk through the field and do some farm work. Either a carrot, they'd hang, but... They hang a carrot just out in front of the animal's nose, and so it would chase the carrot all around the field, pulling the plow behind him. So that's the positive inducement. There's something out there to reach for. That's what he was just doing when he talked about thanks thanksgiving, thankfulness. Look at all this in front of you. Reach out for it, chase it. The other approach is the stick, which is the whack on the backside to drive the animal on by pain or by fear. That's what these verses are. They're the stick. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, you may be sure of this. This is utterly true. Make no mistake about it. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, which is idolatry, this is the lustful walking of verse 3. It's the same words in the same order. Everyone who walks like that has no inheritance in the kingdom. None. All that stuff in the first couple chapters, gone. None. Instead, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. People will try to argue otherwise. Don't be deceived. The only thing that's coming, all that remains, is the wrath of God. That wrath in chapter 2 that was talked about coming on the sons of disobedience, It's still coming, and it will fall on people who walk like verses 3 and 4. Do you hear the warning here? Really, the awful promise. There's no question of this. Be very sure of it, says Paul. The promise. And it is awful. Heed it. They will be shut out from the presence of God forever. They will not receive the inheritance. They will not be with him in the new heaven and the new earth. They will not enjoy him forever and ever. But will only experience his wrath. That is what they have coming to them. But who is they? It's an important question. They are the people characterized by immorality and impurity and covetousness. Don't let that be you. That's the point of the warning. Get the point of the warning there. It's not mere information to you. It's not just telling you about other people so that you can know something intriguing. It's a warning. Paul's writing to the church. It's a warning to the church. Don't let that be you. May your mind be renewed by this. It's true. Don't walk that way. Now, I'm sure that someone will say, or someone will at least think, "Uh, Steve, the stick doesn't really apply to me because I'm already saved, you see. I can't lose the inheritance. I have it for good. I can't experience the wrath of God. I'm a believer. I understand what you're saying. Believe me, I understand what you're saying. that's That's not the point here. That's not the question at hand. What the stick is saying, what Paul is saying is that over here, there's a path. Down this path a ways, very suddenly there comes a thousand foot drop off. And if you fall over that edge, you die. Stay away from that path. That's what he's saying. And we shouldn't be saying to Paul, how far down that path can I walk? Where exactly is, I don't think the cliff's that close. It's probably further down there ways. And I actually, if I fell off, I actually wouldn't die because I'm actually saved. I'd kind of float in the air or something. So I don't think it's really that serious of a thing. That's the wrong discussion. Stay away from that path. That's the point. This is the path of blessing. This is the path of communion with God. Walk it. Stay away from that one. That one's dangerous. That's the point. We miss the point when we begin to debate about what would happen if we walked there. Don't walk there. You're not supposed to. Walk this path. Walk verses 1 and 2. Gaze at the Lord. Come to this path by carrot. Or fear that path and come to it by stick. Either way, come to this path. Walk the path of blessing that leads to the walk of love. You are a dearly loved child of His. Cling to Him. Look at Him. Be changed by Him. Gaze at the Lord. And because of all that He is for you, because of all that you see there, walk in love, not in lust. Let me pray.